0: Afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this uh, author talk event with Dr. Joy Sanchez Taylor, who is the author of *Diverse Futures: uh, Science Fiction and Authors of Color*. Uh, my co-host is Jay Moses, who has the print copy and uh, was holding it up. I've got the ebook copy, and I think the author who is joining us has the hardback copy. So we've got all three versions. There we go. represented. Um, It's fantastic to see such a large live audience. If you are joining us live then please do type out your questions and your comments using the questions box and I'll relay those to uh, Dr Sanchez-Taylor who will be telling us all about her research and her new book. Um, She is an Associate Professor of English at LaGuardia Community College in New York her research interest is science fiction and fantasy literature by authors of color and she has articles published with the journal science fiction studies extrapolation and the journal of the fantastic in the arts um joy thank you so much for visiting us today and giving us your time
1: oh thank you for having me
0: um, let's start uh, well, first of all um jay and i both really really enjoyed this book um we got so much out of it and i think it's a really important book for anyone interested in science fiction so we heartily recommend it um, and it is available at all good bookstores published by a higher state university press you can buy it in ebook form uh, which is what i did in the uk but i could have also got the paperback i just couldn't wait um, but um, do check out the book um, just to begin with can you tell us a little bit about what led you to write this book and what led you to this area of research?
1: Goodness, not, not a traditional journey, <laughs> which uh, I don't necessarily recommend, but I also think is a, is a really good lesson for people that you don't always have to take the traditional route, uh, which I think is you know, great for your university you know with you know, potentially non-traditional students. Uh, But I did write about uh, science fiction and race for my dissertation, Uh, that was eight years ago. And like all good dissertations, it was not the project I had envisioned, you know, time constraints and committee constraints. Uh, And I ended up walking out with my PhD and going, never again, I'm not writing anything after this. (laughs) I have been traumatized, I think I'm gonna get a nice teaching job. And I was really fortunate to get hired at LaGuardia Community College, which is a very unusual community college. So especially for people who don't know us systems in the US. uh, A lot of the community colleges are very teaching heavy and they don't tend to value research as much. But LaGuardia is part of the City University of New York system. So they actually give release time in the first five years uh, that you're hired there for tenure track faculty to do research. Uh, So when I got hired, they told me you will have to, you know, you'll have to go to conferences, you'll have to do some research, you'll have to publish at least one journal article, and I said, oh, okay, I I can do that. That's easy. Uh, And the more that I started going to conferences and doing research and rekindling, you know, why did I love studying science fiction? uh, It occurred to me, you know, what I actually researched for my dissertation has value. you know, it's important, and I feel like people need to know about it, so I actually spent years after that uh, completely redoing it, so it is not my dissertation. I completely rewrote it. I rewrote it so that it would be the book that I I had always envisioned, with multiple authors discussed per chapter uh, thematically rather than chronologically or historically, Uh, and I wanted it to be sort of a guidebook Uh, an introduction to science fiction by authors of color that could be read by anyone. So I tried to write it as accessibly as possible uh, and to center the chapters around, at least three of the four chapters are recognizable tropes of science fiction. And then in the fourth chapter, I wanted to take people into an area that is a little bit less known with indigenous science.
2: Fantastic. The beginning of your, book, you kind of introduce it with a kind of autobiographical story of kind of entering the genre, which has traditionally been white, uh, or at least, you know, that's part of the book's purpose. You mind sharing a little bit about your encounter with uh, this white genre science fiction and how you negotiated that as Latina?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, growing up, you know, you're never explicitly told that sci-fi fantasy is a white genre. It's just sort of an assumed thing. When you go to the science fiction and fantasy aisle at a bookstore or a library, overwhelmingly the covers feature white characters, and so it just gets internalized. And like a lot of people of color who read science fiction, I just considered myself an oddity. I was a Latina nerd, you know. Oh, I'm the only one. (laughs) Uh, And then I I talk about it in the introduction of uh, Diverse Futures that Right before I went into my, my PhD program, I read Juno Diaz's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Well. And that was the first time I saw a Latino nerd, re- you know, depicted in fiction. You know, another Latino who loved Tolkien and comic books and all of the great sci-fi things that that I grew up with. And I, you know, at that point, that made me question one, because I was like, why is this the first time I'm seeing this now that I think about it, uh, and two, he's, you know, Junot Diaz does a great job of referencing uh, other science fiction authors of color, in particular Octavia Butler and Samuel Delany, so that reference made me want to look into those authors, and then I started as a hobby, and then eventually uh, one of my professors recommended, hey, what if you wrote about this for your dissertation, uh so yeah it it was a lot of work it was a lot of word of mouth research uh because a lot of these authors are not as well known uh but i found it you know really rewarding to go into these online communities of science fiction fans and be able to find people like me who really thought they were the only you know nerd of color out there in, in the in the world and now we're connecting so i I think it's great. And and I grew up reading all of the traditional sci-fi fantasy works. Uh you know, and, and I love them and I still love them. But the work that I do now, the authors that are that I'm researching uh are writing things that I not only love reading, but I can really see myself represented in. So and, and that's so important, especially for the next generation.
0: Yeah. So do you feel that um things have got better in in that regard I mean in, in the the impression I get from your book is that um there is hope um and the online communities in particular um give people uh spaces and um help promote voices and so on um, but there is still more work to be done in terms of making sure there is equality in science fiction. And w- when we think about science fiction, we don't just think about, you know, the ABC, Asimov, Bradbury, Clark, but we we think of some other letters as well. Um, what What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of hope, actually. And, and in, uh, in the conclusion of Diverse Futures, I do a whole rundown of of all the good things that are happening in particular online uh, with science fiction and authors of color. So, you know, the internet has been a big boon. I I say, you know, at the beginning of the the conclusion of Diverse Futures, I couldn't have written this book without the internet. It it would not have been possible. So there's a lot of great online uh, communities that are connecting. So there's that, I can't even name, uh, it's in the conclusion of Diverse Futures, but I'll name out a few, you know, uh, Black Girl Nerds, the Black Science Fiction Society, uh, there's Imagining Indigenous Futurisms on Facebook. So there's a lot of really great uh, science fiction and fantasy communities that are centered around uh, specific races and ethnicities. Uh, things like Kickstarter have made it possible for authors of color who want to write science fiction, who can't get it published somewhere traditionally to get funding to create these projects. Uh, And I think a lot of the magazines. So I've seen, you know, there are new magazines like Fire magazine, uh, but then also other magazines like Asimov's uh, and uh, Fantastica, you know, they're really branching out into uh, special issues that are, you know, in particular for for, uh, Black, Indigenous people of color authors, uh, LGBTQIA uh, authors. So I'm seeing a lot of really exciting work being published in the magazines. I think the challenges, and there are publishers, small publishers, uh, Rosarium Press, uh, Mocha Memoirs Press that are doing some really great work uh, lifting up black indigenous people of color voices in science fiction. So they're doing a lot of the legwork. Uh, and mm-hmm. Now, since I know you guys are also uh, have a big focus on fantasy, uh, Milton Davis and MV Media as well in, in fantasy. So a lot of that good work is happening. And there are a lot of really devoted people who are putting in a lot of unpaid labor <laughs> to make that work happen. And I think that's the issue that I discuss in the conclusion, is that a lot of this is happening by word of mouth. It takes these authors a lot of unpaid labor to get the word out. The publishers, the authors, they're all putting in way too many hours. And it's a problem that could be easily fixed if we had more diversity in in publishing. And Mm so, you know, I know that's an issue that's come up multiple times, you know, there's whole social media, you know, conversations around it, but the more diversity we get into big publishing houses that publish science fiction and fantasy, uh, you know, the more that we'll have breakout works like, you know, Tomi, Tony Tony *Children of Blood and Bone* being on the New York Times bestseller list for 52 weeks. You know, there is an audience for this. You know, these books can can make a lot of money uh, if if they're recognized and if the people reading them understand what the authors are trying to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, listening to a civil rights leader here in Chicago. Talk about that the most revolutionary aid for people of color in a post-Floyd world is the cell phone because you can film what's going on right then and it kind of reminds me of what you're saying here is that the internet is 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 a way of getting word out when when um, the major sources are blocked uh so it's, that- it's,
1: yeah it's a help and it's a hindrance because we have things like you know kickstarter yeah a lot of times these author you know these authors are encouraged to do platforms like that instead of you know reaching out to the the publishing houses uh and a kickstarter takes a lot of time and a lot of unpaid labor and i would rather these authors be published a little bit more traditionally get some advances be able to focus on their writing and not have to focus so much on advertising and uh you know getting the word out and doing the kickstarters and all of that
2: Mm -hmm sure
0: and um you know there's there's steps forward and and there's also i suppose steps sideways i mean i i, I was really enjoying your analysis of um the story of your life is that the, the name of the the text in chapter 1 okay. and i was thinking this is fascinating and it feels familiar and then i realized oh i've seen the film version arrival <laughs> yeah. but i had no idea it was based on a on a book or that I had um this this kind of this narrative that challenges Euro Western uh, viewpoint of of time and and the idea of progress that didn't come out in the film for me and maybe I was missing it, but it's it's a step forward in that you know and you talk about that in the conclusion, um, we you know authors of color can can get their work turned into films and so on and and through TV series and so on, but I don't know if it's really making the mainstream. Splash that um, that it should uh, because there I don't know if you how you felt about that adaptation if you saw it um, whether it missed the point of the story
1: I'd say I enjoyed the adaptation but yeah a lot of times you know in particular for more cerebral authors like Ted Chiang who is a lovely human being and is is so introspective. It's really hard to put that on on the film screen. So I understand. I know that the the person who at, adapted it for for film was a huge fan of Ted Chang. He was in contact with him. He got permission to uh, to adapt this. So I know that he valued the story and understood it. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, internal dialogue that happens in the the short story version. Uh, where the the narrator is taught, you know, thinking to herself about her perceptions of language and how those perceptions of language and time and linear time in particular are being challenged. That, yeah, and the story itself in, in the story version is not told in a chronological order also. So I think a lot of that got lost in the film version and then I think there's always a danger of yeah, not so much in Arrival because the the characters' races aren't explicitly stated necessarily, uh, but in a lot of works uh, that I talk about in Diverse Futures, I think there would be a real danger if they got adapted of them being whitewashed, and we definitely don't want to see that happen. So you know, these creators they have to be they have to be careful that their work goes into the hands of people who will understand, you know. What their vision is and and you know what we're gonna to get to see matches. Uh, and then, yeah, there's just certain things that you can do so much better in writing that you can't necessarily do in a film version., uh, but I do like the visual. Uh, you know that they actually I actually get to see the aliens visualized. Uh, I like the language, the way that they depicted it on the screen. You know, it's always nice when I imagine something in my head to then be able to see the actual visual. So I enjoyed that part of it. But yeah, I think a lot of the um, the value of, of non-linear time and the way that that can help people perceive the world got lost a little bit in the film.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, like, a um, so go ahead, Jay. That's just such a fascinating point you make there about um, time, because those who have any connections from the majority culture, the white culture, into indigenous communities, know their sense of time. Is such a rich uh, resource and reservoir, and and yet, if we name the last, you know, if we picked up the anthology of time travel stories, the best ones, that you wouldn't have anything of that in there. Um, so it's such a things you don't see are just right underneath the surface, and have always been there.
1: Yeah, and in a lot of indigenous cultures, in particular, and I, and I will tell your audience that I never want to. One of the dangers of writing a book like the one that I wrote, is that I, I never want to make it seem like all of these cultures are, are doing the same thing, that they're all similar, that these authors are all similar. They're all doing their own thing, and there are many indigenous cultures that don't hold those viewpoints. But there are several across, across the globe, not just in one particular place, uh, indigenous cultures in Africa, indigenous cultures in the Americas, that hold, you know, that hold this non, this non-linear view of time, Uh, they view time as cyclical, they view the cycle as as ongoing, Uh, and so they pass down stories and information from generation to generation, holding that information so that they can look at the patterns. Uh, And indigenous cultures have been able to predict severe weather, everything from severe weather to, uh, you know, uh, many other different events that we are just now, you know, in Western science, starting to value that that level of information that they have gathered and call it science, because, in a, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Western culture looks at that and calls it storytelling or calls it religion. Uh, they don't necessarily call it science, but when you collect data over, you know, centuries and you hold it, whether you write it down or not, uh, you know, that is scientific and that is a process and it should be, it should definitely be valued. Uh, And a lot of that is showing up too in things like uh, cutting edge theoretical physics. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) You know, the the things that we consider cutting edge and new in Western science for a lot of indigenous cultures, they've had this information for for a long, long time.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was reminded uh, uh, last year I did a, a panel discussion for Pembroke College um, as part of the talking lecture series uh, and we had fantastic um, presenters or previous lectures amazing authors and I asked a question which was um, uh, the pand- has the pandemic will the pandemic change um, our view of the natural world because in the past fantasy has all been about kind of um, uh, natural landscapes as places of healing, whereas now it's don't go to the beach because you'll get COVID and die if you're around these places. Um, so I wondered if that was going to sort of change that trope in fantasy. And um, one of the speakers, Rebecca F. Quang said, well, you know what, um, uh, authors of color have been talking about toxic landscapes for decades. And I, and I wasn't, you know, because I was just thinking of talking and, and so on. Um, I mean it is easy to 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 forget all those other perspectives and and not just sort of oh it's different, but actually l- read these texts and read and read these, listen to these voices because um they're they're ahead of the rest of literature in some ways, or they're they're saying things that other, you know, the, the world sort of catches up to. Um did you find that when you when you were looking at these texts? Um that there is a kind of um, th- things things that sort of are now being kind of caught up with in terms of the perspective, in terms of what that what they're looking at.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm still getting over being jealous that you had R.F. Klang yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> on a panel because
1: no, I love yeah. her and the Poppy Wars is an amazing uh, yeah. set of books. I I will say that. I think a lot of the issues that came up in the pandemic, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, our rights, uh, having our bodies restricted, uh, you know, having to deal with, with, you know, our actions impacting others in our communities, uh, a lot of that, you know, communities of color have been dealing with for a very long time. And so I think you know nothing good has come out of the pandemic. I will never say anything good about the pandemic, but I will say that I think now people are more aware. Uh, the average person here in the U.S. tends to be more aware of climate change and how that's impacting us, and more aware of how their actions actually connect to others. Because I think you know, as much as I, I. Say the internet is a good thing, it's also been hurting us in terms of connecting with other people. And so the idea that, you know, we're being forced to reckon with how our actions are impacting the community, I think those are very good things. And I think those are things that are already in the works that I talk about in Diverse Futures. A lot of the authors, not just the indigenous authors, there are a lot of um, African American authors. I'm thinking of. basically the entire chapter of my book on indigenous and western science. I have authors of multiple races and ethnicities in that chapter uh, who write these wonderful works with, you know, living ships that have a symbiotic relationship with the people on the ships, you know, communities where, that are aware, you know, of their interconnectivity. Societies that are built on that, those ideas. Uh, And so Yes, I think that's that's already here. Uh, you know, there is a whole section of science fiction cli-fi that is dealing with climate change and its and its impacts and everything, but I mean, I won't say because I haven't read all of it, but I will say that I, I miss in those works sometimes the idea of of the interconnectivity of of all beings on the planet. The idea that we're all going to have to recognize our impact on not only other people, but other species, on the the actual planet itself, uh, when we go to deal with these issues. So I think that's one of the things that the the authors in in this book, in in particular, in in the indigenous and Western sciences chapter I, I managed to find authors that are looking back at indigenous knowledge in order to create these really amazing futures uh where you know you can see that that interconnectivity a lot better
0: yeah um, so so go, go ahead jay
2: no i was just gonna say i was really drawn to a phrase you you mentioned in the book that uh, people of color need images of tomorrow and our people need them the most and i just made me think about how narrative can create the future you know um and how I so can't much take
1: credit that's samuel delaney <laughs> <laughs> well, it you, quoted
2: it. you quoted it it was wonderful but um there's such an ethical repercussion to what you're writing about what we're doing now i don't know if you if you would just say a few words about kind of that subversive element within science fiction that can aid us for a better future even when the genre itself is kind of contaminated in some ways.
1: Yeah, I say in the introduction that this is why these authors are drawn to this genre. You know, this is literally the genre of literature where anything is supposed to be possible. So, of course, people who are are being marginalized would look at this genre and go, oh, here's where I can write about, you know, the hope. You know, here's where I can write about how this could change. Uh, And yes, there are some real barriers to them being able to do that, with the history of science fiction being very white and Eurocentric, but there is that possibility in there. And it's been there from the beginning. I mean, you know, War of the Worlds. Yeah, it it it's we've been able to use science fiction to critique things like colonization uh, and, you know, and to show people, you know, the alien point of view, which very often gets construed as the other, you know, the and the racial other in particular. Uh, so, science fiction has so much potential, uh, and that potential is going, you know, it's my hope that that potential gets realized, and I see it happening, and, and I'm, the authors that I'm writing about for this book are making it happen. Uh, and it's it's very important, because one of the things, you know, I see this impact all the time. I teach at one, one of the most diverse community colleges in the US, uh, you know, where we're, CUNY system is huge. LaGuardia has students from, you know, almost every country on the globe. A lot of these students have immigrated to the US or their parents have immigrated to the US and they're, they're they're looking for opportunity. They're looking to be able to express themselves. And so the one thing that I try to get them to see, when I tell them we're gonna read science fiction, they look at me like, what? <laughs> I don't read science fiction. Uh, and then I, I tell them, wait, you know, it's not that it's not that sci-fi. Let's put it that way. Uh, and they're able to see in these stories that that these authors are talking about issues of colonization and immigration and otherness and alienation. And they go, wait a minute, that's my story. You know, so science fiction has so much potential and so much power to show people that there is a possibility for change. Uh, and, and we really do need that because I see my in my students in particular all the time It always makes me sad when I see them Limit themselves. They're constantly telling me what they can't do Uh, and you know and what's not a, not open to them And and that's true in a lot of ways But i'm hoping for the future that that they'll be able to see more opportunity for themselves They'll be able to if you can see yourself in the future then you can you can actualize that you can make it happen but if you can't even you know Tony, you know an author like tomi adeyemi has talked about this in detail she's so wise she's in her 20s and i swear she's so wise and she talks about not even knowing how to start writing descriptions of black people in her her literature because there literally are no descriptions for the hair types that she's talking about for the know for you know some of the features that she's talking about Uh, so these authors are literally building these worlds from the language they use up Uh, and in doing so they're going to inspire generations to come uh you know who will actually be able to see themselves represented accurately in the future
0: is that particular to science fiction um what about fantasy how does, how does that work? Are, are, you, are you thinking about fantasy as well?
1: Yes, I am. And I'm thinking about it a lot more these days. <laughs> uh, I, t- I told you both, but I'll tell the audience that I, my next project, I'm hoping, if I am able to get the grant that I'm going for, is going to be fantasy-based. Because I, I cannot ignore what's happening. You know, in, in young adult fantasy in particular, uh, authors of color have managed to take off I'm very excited about the work they did. I just finished a reading group for the Center for Fiction here in New York this summer called Rethinking Race in Fantasy Literature. Uh, and we talked about Tomi Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone, uh, Nivose, uh, The Empress of Salt and Fortune, and Darcy Littlebatter's Il- Iletzoe. So three vastly different fantasy representations. Uh, that are really sort of taking the traditional hero's journey, and in a lot of, you know, and a lot of these works turning it upside down, just, you know, writing works that center women or center LGBTQIA peoples, writing works that are built on non-Euro, non-Euro western cultures, uh, and a lot of these authors in particular, like Tomi, you know, Tomi Adeyemi, Darcy Little Badger, they're in their 20s, you know, they're, they're just starting out in their writing careers, and they already have so much awareness of what they're doing, and, uh, and they've put so much time and, and work into the research, into the descriptions in their worlds, uh, that I'm really excited to, to see what's happening there. And the fact that, you know, these works are getting public attention, that makes me very excited as well. So, I think there's going to be a lot of good things happening in fantasy. The fact that, you know, uh, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's The Dark Fantastic won, you know, was award winning. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm so jealous of her cover, too, because, like, it's, oh my God, yeah. I love Paul Lewin. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think it's works like that and, and the work that we're going to do in the next couple of years in fantasy studies. If these scholars can get support, uh, if the authors and the scholars can both get support from traditional fantasy, you know, structures, I think we can see some really exciting work happening in, uh, deconstructing the way that these authors use, uh, narrative structures that are not the traditional hero's journey, how they're using, uh, narrative structures from other cultures, uh, the societies that these worlds are built on, the, you know, uh, for children of blood and bone, orisha culture is taking off and a lot of fantasy works. Uh, so I, I think these are really exciting things happening and I wanna see them keep happening. So I'm hoping my next project can raise some awareness about that. Uh, originally, I had thought about writing diverse futures and including you know, at least one uh, fantasy chapter. And once I got into it, I found, if you don't focus, <laughs> you're really gonna get lost. Uh, So I ended up deciding to to put that aside for the next project, but uh, I am really excited because because a lot of the authors that I write about intersect sci-fi and fantasy. So you can see some of the same names if I if I were to write diverse fantasies and I were to write it exactly the way I wanted to there would be a lot of authors from diverse futures who would also show up in diverse fantasies because you know the way that they're writing science fiction and incorporating cultural elements also, you know, leans them towards fantasy sometimes. Uh, and I think there's a lot of genre blurring going on, which I'm finding really exciting. I don't, I don't know, you know, I know that there are some science fiction and fantasy scholars who don't like that, uh, you know, because as scholars we do like to classify things. Uh, but I'm always excited when I see an author. I mean. Darcy Little Badger in Elatza Way, she's writing a book that has fairies, vampires, uh, and ghosts in an indigenous-based culture. And I'm like, why did no one else think to do that? You know, <laughs> this is amazing, you know? So I, I think we're going to see a lot of genre blurring. And uh, I, I'm ready for fairies in space. Come on, let's go. Definitely.
2: <laughs> Definitely. You, know, Julie, say- you, you, you mentioned in your book um four or five communities latina african-american indigenous and asian and i was kind of wondering if there was any other um authors of color you would have wanted to put in there that you just didn't have a space for or you've even mentioned the lgbtqia community a few times how you see that intersecting in this if at all or if that obviously that broadens it so much but um how do you think about that
1: yeah i mean i think there are some important overlap between studies of race and science fiction and and studies of gender, obviously. Um, A lot of these authors are intersectional that I'm writing about. River Solomon uh, self-identifies as LGBTQIA, uh, Gabby Rivera. So several of the authors in here uh, identify as LGBTQIA. And I, I thought it was really important when I was writing about their works in Diverse Futures to not only make that clear, but to really talk about how that impacts the way that they write about race, uh, because this book is centered on on authors of color and how they're responding to sort of, you know, a white Eurocentric viewpoint. It is mostly, race, you know, I'm I'm addressing race, but there are areas in particular in the post-apocalyptic chapter where I'm also addressing uh, authors like Sabrina Borvialis and Gabby Rivera. I mean, you can't talk about their dystopic future worlds without talking about the roles of women in those worlds, the roles of LGBTQIA people in those worlds. It's all interconnected. Uh, and so, yes, I encourage scholars of, you know, science fiction and fantasy, when you are writing about an author who is a, an author of color uh, and an LG, a member of the LGBTQIA community, that, that needs to show up in your analysis of those authors. That's part of their identity, and if you take it out of the equation, you're missing part of what you could be learning.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Um, and just, just to respond to uh, the, uh, the, the, the what you were saying about fantasy, um, authors can employ the kind of what if for fantasy as well. So um, Marlon James um, watched the trailer for The Hobbit and Said to his friend, "Where are the black people? Why, why aren't there any black people in Middle Earth?" And his friend said, "Well, you know, it's Euro-Western and you know, based on British folklore and so on." So, so, so James uh, said, "Okay, I'll create, I'll create my own version. I'll create, you know, my own world." Um, so that kind of thing is is possible in fantasy, but in a different way. So, looking forward to to the new book when you write it. I hope hope you get the the grant because um, that sounds like a really important piece of work as well. Um, The other thing um, I wanted to talk about was just kind of the way this book is structured. So we've talked a bit about the uh, Indigenous Science and Western Science Advanced Technologies chapter. Um, There's also a chapter on post-apocalyptic landscapes, a chapter on first contact narratives, and a chapter all about genetic modification. Um, How did you end up with those four areas and were they would, did they come out of the text or did the did the areas come first and then you looked at texts, or was it kind of chicken and egg situation there?
1: Yeah, it it was a little bit. I you know, obviously had a list of texts in my head that I wanted to write about. The choosing of text, two there were two important things for me. One is that the depictions, the depictions of race and culture in the text went beyond surface description and really integrated, uh, you know, cultural elements of, of, you know, because in a lot of science fiction, especially contemporary sci-fi, you can have diverse characterization, but are you learning about that character's culture? Are you going to their home? Are you, are you encountering other languages? You know, not always, uh, so, I, I didn't want to include sci-fi that just had this sort of post-racial, diverse future. Uh, I wanted to include works where the, the ethnicities and cultures of, of the works were actually really well integrated. So that, you know, that was gatekeeping some works in, in, at the beginning. Uh, and then, as I figured out which works I wanted to talk about, then I started grouping them. And a lot of authors, like Octavia Butler, <laughs> have been in every chapter. Uh, You know, Fledgling is my favorite work of hers, and it's the one that I've done the most research on. I actually went to the Octavia Butler Archive over in California to do research on that text in particular, but, you know, it could have been in so many different chapters of this work, and so I also decided that one, every author was going to appear one time, uh, and that they were only going to appear in one chapter. Uh, so I had to figure out with a lot of these intersect, you know, with a lot of these texts that are genre blurring and, uh, and incorporating multiple sci-fi tropes, which chapter was I going to discuss that in? Uh, so, th- so that helped me sort of group the works. And then I decided in particular, I was beating myself up for not including an AI chapter Uh, because I was like, oh, that, you know, that, that would be so great, but in terms of word constraints and what the publisher wanted, uh, I would have had to kick one of the other chapters out to do that, and I wasn't willing to do that because I think that the chapters that I ended up with are the areas that people most need to know about. I, there's been a lot of work done with AI and cyberpunk literature, and authors of color have shown up in those works, Um, so I decided to leave that out. I just, you know, it, it broke my heart, but I decided to leave out, uh, AI and in, in favor of talking about, uh, genetic modification, because if in a book that talks about race and science fiction, how can I not talk about, you know, uh, genetics, it, that was my favorite, one of my favorite chapters to write and the indigenous culture chapter in particular were, were some of my favorites. Uh, And then I wanted to make sure that the majority of the the chapters were recognizable sci-fi tropes, because Mm -hmm. I want this to be picked up by sci-fi fans. Yeah, and when I was writing the introduction and deciding what do I think is the definition of science fiction, because there's so many, uh, I decided that the definition of science fiction for me is more fan-based. What do the fans think are science fiction? And Mm -hmm. the fans expect recognizable tropes and that's when i got the idea okay what if i center the chapters on the tropes rather than trying to write this you know chronologically or trying to group them you know by by the year they were published or some other you know and i definitely didn't want to group them by race and ethnicity because there's too much of that going on already i wanted i wanted every chapter to have authors who were different races er, Different races and ethnicities, because I think it's important to talk about the places where these authors' ideas intersect. So, mm-hmm. so all of that guided the way that I was thinking about. It. I don't think I was always consciously. <laughs> I don't know how much of it was, you know, super conscious and, and how much of it was just me going, okay, I need to organize. I, I need to find a way to organize this. But I'm I'm happy with how it turned out because I think if you're a scholar of sci-fi you'll understand what i'm saying but if you're a fan if if you don't do science fiction scholarship and you just re- you love science fiction and you watch it and you read it i think you'll look at the chapter titles and go oh okay i reckon you know aliens okay i can read a chapter on aliens mm-hmm. uh so i'm that's what i'm hoping and and you know for fans for students i want this to be accessible for sci-fi scholars i wanted them to be able to learn something
0: yeah, and, and you've definitely succeeded. I mean, I, th- I think you're talking the conclusion about one of the challenges for authors of color is that kind of pigeonholing of like, oh, well, you only read that read this author if you're interested in reading an author of color kind of thing, as if as if that term is, uh, you know, um, one group of people. If obviously, it's not. And and you talk about the limitations of that term as well, and and why you use it. But, likewise, you know this book um you know n- nobody should think this is the book to read if you're interested in authors of color and science fiction this is the book to read if you're interested in science fiction because um it's it, it it's uh it's just a great science fiction academic book um that focuses on authors of color um uh, which is a really really important area of uh scholarship um so uh yeah, I think I think that definitely works. Um, we've got a comment from someone in the audience, Brenton Dickison, and this is a reminder for everyone to type in your comments and your questions. We've got about 20 minutes before we have to leave, um, so it'd be great to hear from all of you in the audience, um, based on your thoughts on what, uh, everything that Dr. Taylor has been telling us. Um, and Brenton writes in to say, thank you so much for the brilliant discussion and your absolutely essential resource uh for a few years i have been reading um black women science fiction writers uh, such as octavia butler annalor hopkinson uh ned nedi uh, sorry nedi,
1: Okorafo,
0: nedi Okorafo, yeah um nk jemison and others it strikes me that these authors consistently transgress the limits of science fiction as a genre adding elements of magic the supernatural and fantasy is there something about these writers that causes them to push past the edge? I would love to hear your thoughts.
1: Um, I think you know a lot of the authors in that I write about in this book could be described as irreverent, which I love. I think is fantastic. And I think uh, if you're if you're really interested in, in the viewpoint of why, I would read N. K. Jemison's acceptance speech, her Hugo acceptance speech. I, I think it speaks to a lot of why, and, and in particular, black women sci-fi authors uh, are transgressing the transgressing these boundaries that we've set for science fiction. Uh, and, and in her acceptance speech, she talks about raising a rocket-shaped middle finger <laughs> to the science fiction community. Uh, and you know, a, I'm not gonna speak for every author in this book, but in terms of of myself, I love science fiction. I love reading science fiction. That's why I wrote about science fiction. But yes, we're also at the same time aware that a lot of science fiction is not written for us or intended for us or addressing us at all. Uh, And so I think there are times, you know, in the Broken Earth trilogy, uh, N.K. Jemisin specifically, like around the, the middle of the second book, names the the ability of the orogenes in her novel as magic and when i read that i knew exactly why she's using this loaded term in a work of that was classified as science fiction and won the hugo award for each book Uh, again it's it's that irreverence it's that guess what this is a science fiction world and we can have magic in this world too Uh, you know this is a science fiction world but it looks mostly like the real world, you know, which sometimes gets categorized into magical realism. Uh, and so it's hard, because as much as I, I want to see authors do that, uh, I, I enjoy that. That's the kind of reading that I really like to do. I think sometimes it also hurts these authors. To of do is talked in length. Kinitture Brooks, who is one of the editors for the New Sun series, who approved my book talks about this in particular, uh, for black women authors in particular, crossing genres, writing sci-fi with horror elements or fantasy with sci-fi elements, um, can really hurt them in terms of publication because the publishing houses don't know what to do with this. Uh, So I see a lot of genre blurring and then I see a lot of authors that get relegated into, oh, this is magical realism. Even even if it's hard science fiction, if it's a Latino author, sometimes, oh, this is magical realism. Oh, this is Afrofuturism. And then I talk about it in the introduction. I specifically use science fiction for the title of this book and throughout this book, because these are science fiction authors, as you said, and they deserve to be on the science fiction lists and in the science fiction aisle of the bookstore. And that's my vision for the future. Is when we get out of this pandemic and I can go to a bookstore on a regular basis again, I want to walk into the science fiction section and see Nanetti Okorafor and N.K. Jemison and Octavia Butler and all the other beautifully diverse covers that have come out that often are on online reading lists, but are not physically in the bookstores. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yes, I think they're doing it on purpose and I think they're challenging you know, the limits of these genres because. For a lot of reasons, but one reason in particular being because they don't feel like they have to adhere to the genre. I, I think authors who don't feel like they're often included wouldn't necessarily feel like they have to adhere to genre conventions, and then some of it is cultural as well, because indigenous culture considers a lot of what we consider magic or religion to them as science. So, you know, it's, it's different forms of science sometimes coming up and Uh, I'm I'm forgetting, but Grace Dillon does a a great uh, article where she talks about uh, Conjure Science, Uh, and if people are interested in that idea, they should look that up. Yeah, Walking the Clouds, Grace Dillon, and then she has an article specifically on Conjure Science and and the work of Andrea Hairston uh, that really talks about the way that we see science and how we often take indigenous science and label it as magic.
2: Brilliant,
0: um, Jay, do you have a, another question?
2: No, just to, to your point about genre and, and publishing, you wanna say something about new the New Sun series so people can mm-hmm. understand at least uh, what's being published there?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, um, I'm really excited. I was very lucky that, that the New Sun series had been started when I was shopping uh, diverse futures t- uh, to different publishers. I immediately saw that Ohio State was doing a series devoted specifically to alternate views of science fiction and speculative fiction. So looking at race and gender, gender uh, and sexuality in these genres. And I said, oh my God, this is where <laughs> this is exactly right for diverse futures. So I pitched the book there and, and they were such a big help uh, with, with helping me get through the process to actually get the book published. So really shout out to them. But if you go to the Ohio State University Press, New Suns, it's called New Suns series. Uh, there's an entire series of books that have been, that have come out on uh, speculative fiction and science fiction uh, related to race, gender, and sexuality that are doing some amazing work. There's even horror. Uh, so they, they're really, you know, taking speculative broadly. Um, there's been multiple works on Afrofuturism that have come out that way. Uh, and I'm not going to remember all the books of the series off the top of my head, but they're, they're doing some really great cutting-edge work. They, they published um, Afrofuturism Rising, which it, uh, is Isaiah Lev- Levander III is a mentor of mine, and uh, you know, he does great work in the field of Afrofuturism. So, and they're looking for more uh, books, if people have ideas to pitch that would fit into the the, the series. And every book in the series gets a beautiful custom cover from the uh art duo Black Kirby. Uh John Jennings and Stacey Robinson, who are really well-known graphic novel artists. So that's where I, you know, I got lucky in that that my cover is awesome. And that was that was not me, that was them.
0: <laughs> uh, Jay, can you hold up the cover again?
2: Right, yeah. The cover.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool.
1: I was so honoured that they would do the cover for
0: me. Fantastic. Um, We've got another uh, question from the audience. Avery uh, writes in to say, Joy, such a wonderful talk as always. A question less about scholarship and more about personal tastes. What are some of your favourite science fiction texts? Can be literature, film or anything. Um, Were there any new discoveries you made during your research that you fell in love with?
1: Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, All of them. How can I choose? (laughs) Um, I mean, of course, you know, N.K. Jemisin and her Broken Earth series. I mean, Octavia Butler was the first author that, that really guided, you know, whose work I found that I wanted to keep reading, and that it also made me desperately uncomfortable. And I think a lot of the authors in Diverse Futures do this really well, uh, i think if a text is making you feel that uncomfortable it's doing something right uh and I've, i mean octavia butler is just one of those authors who has has no parallel you know she has not been matched yet and when i asked when people would ask me when uh when i was doing my research on her and i would do presentations they would ask me you know who who's the next octavia butler or who should we read you know that's like octavia butler I said, well, she she has no parallel, but N.K. Jemison reminds me of her. Uh, and the Broken Earth trilogy, I, you know, is brilliant. And I had the good fortune to be able to interview her, uh, Sabrina Borvialis and Eugene Lim for the, uh, the Queen's Museum a couple of years back. Uh, and, and their works have so uh, in, so influenced me, so influenced the way that I think about science fiction. Uh, reading Walking the Clouds by Grace Dillon, which was the first indigenous science fiction anthology. It, I mean, I have it in my back shelf here. The book is like this big. And it it's the word on indigenous science fiction. I mean, it has not been matched yet. There has not, I mean, it's been out for, for years now, and nobody has come close to being able to describe indigenous science fiction the way that Grace Dillon did. The introduction to that book is essential reading if you're interested in, in science fiction. Um, so, so all of those really shaped the way that I think, uh, the writing that I did for this book and the way that I think about it. River Solomon is, is the author that surprised me the most. Uh, an Unkindness of Ghosts broke my heart so many times, but it was so brilliantly written uh, you yeah, know, that you don't mind. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there's just so many, uh, you know, and lately I've been looking, looking ahead, reading things that are, that have just come out. Uh, Shelly, Shelly Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun, uh, and Nevo's uh, The Empress of Salt and Fortune. If you have not read those and you're a fantasy lover, you have to, uh, you know, again, they're just pushing the boundaries. Uh, of fantasy literature, and, and they're, you know, on top of it, they're just brilliant thinkers and brilliant speakers, I've, I've gone to interviews of theirs, uh, and I just love when the author turns out to be as, as awesome and thoughtful as I hoped they would. <laughs> uh, and that that's one of my regrets, Some somebody asked me, were there texts that I had to leave out that I regret? Um, the fact that I couldn't span the entire globe. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's so many great authors doing work in the UK and in Australia that I would have loved to have included, but I I had to keep a focus. I I had to stop somewhere. So I'm hoping somebody will take that on. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, like all good academic books, this grows my to be read pile um, massively, so thank you for that. Uh, and you do say in the book, I hope this project is the start of a larger conversation about how science fiction, uh, how the science fiction genre can work to be more inclusive of authors of colour and the non Eurocentric futures these authors imagine. So, um, you know, there is more work to be done, as you say. Um, so, um, and we've got a response from Brenton. He says, I agree about Octavia Butler as a master and maybe N.K. Jemison as a huge contemporary figure. It might be worth noting that uh, Jens Heber uh, did his Signum master's thesis on Octavia Butler and symbiosis and ends up being uh, one of only a few Butler theses. We need more scholars in this area. Yes, we do. Absolutely. And, and we need to promote that work. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I need mean, I need to go look that up now. I that was my work when I went to the archive. I ended up writing an article uh, called "Fledgling Symbiosis and the Nature Culture oh. Divide."
0: Fantastic. Well, it's uh, the thesis theatre has only just come out, so um, it's in our Signum library. So if you if you um, look on our website and go to the library. Um if if you can't find it, Chris Swank um will point to the way. Uh Chris says I'll send it to, to you, Joy. Um <laughs> oh, it's also you. on YouTube. Yeah. Sounds um like brilliant so, work. <laughs> so we we are coming towards the end. Um Jay, I know you've got some more questions. Do you want to do you have any questions that you want to um leave with? Um any, any kind of sorry to put all the pressure on you to, to think of. No, no,
2: uh, you know what comes to mind is there's a there's a, a show on CNN Sunday nights on sitcoms. It talks about humor, and one of the one of the sections is on race and class and gender, and um, we talk about how humor is subversive. It allows us to talk about things in a way that we're not brave enough to do so normally. And your work here reminds me of the way that uh, science fiction functions in the similar way of asking really important questions for the future and well-being of all of us, but especially those who haven't been seen um, as a significant uh, way to communicate that. So I'm just real grateful. I I don't know about uh, uh, both of you, but I feel like I need to rewatch this and just write down all the titles <laughs> of different things that have happened uh, that you've mentioned. But I just uh, grateful for your work and look forward to the work that you're going to, I believe, God willing, uh, be working on. So thank you.
1: That means so much to me. I, I really tried.
2: <laughs> yeah. and,
1: uh, uh, and you guys are my beta readers. You know, the book just came out less than a month ago, so I haven't gotten as many reactions yet. Uh, so that, yeah, that's my big hope. I, I hope that people will read about these works and then go find them. Because these authors are amazing, and some of them are not getting nearly the amount of recognition that they should be.
0: Well, let, well let's change that, um, uh, and uh, and your work helps change that, I think, as well. Um, but but it's also kind of up to, to kind of the community at large um, to to seek out authors, to encourage publishers to be more, more diverse, to um, to support. Um, authors and publishers who are doing um, these things. Uh, I think, you know, you give so much um, great advice in the conclusion about all these different groups we can join on Reddit and YouTube and Facebook and so on. So as you say, there is a lot of hope and there's a lot of um, inspirational change happening and and we need to all support it and uh, promote it. Um,
1: Please buy, buy the books, follow the authors on social media. Uh, and request them from your local bookstores. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if customers request these authors, the bookstores will carry them.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um. Great. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Sanchez Taylor. Um, uh, we've we've only scratched the surface with this book, no. but um, we've we've talked about some of the things that you you raise. And for everyone else, uh, if you haven't done so already, do check out uh, Diverse Futures um science fiction and authors of color it's available now from ohio state university press um and um do join this conversation uh, that's uh, that the book is part of um anything else thank to add? you
1: thank you to everybody that i recognize from from the audience panelists i know uh, avery thank you for asking a question i know who that is Uh, and I think my dad is here and it's his birthday so (laughs) happy happy birthday birthday, dad and thank you for always supporting my dream to my crazy dream to study science fiction as a PhD student
2: (laughs) brilliant
0: brilliant Um, Chris says Joy it's wonderful to see you again thanks so much for this talk and the book and L'Oreal says "Um, thank you so much Joy and Gabriel and Jay ordering diverse futures right now excellent uh, and Susan says um, public libraries too if you, if you especially if you can't afford to buy all the books because i know what that's like um but use public libraries um it, at least in the uk authors do get some money from the public libraries but also it it encourages you know um more more awareness you know you get things on bookshelves um so that's also good and talking about the books as well is 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 a big thing um and uh, yeah so, uh, anything else to add, Joy?
1: Thank you, guys, so much for having me. Thank you for everybody in the audience who attended. Uh, it, it means a lot to me. This this is my passion project. It's it's what I'm invested in, uh, and I am always here and available if people have questions, if people are studying this and need support. Uh, you know, I want to be there for for everybody who else who wants to amplify these authors and and uh, science fiction authors of color. So thank you
0: all. Fantastic, well what a wonderful place to end. Uh, Thank you again everyone, thank you for attending and thank you for Dr Joy Sanchez-Taylor for taking her time to be with us today. Um, Until next time, um, happy reading, Um, good luck uh, with everything and I will see you at the next Signum University event. Bye bye.